Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Dig Insights. Using decision science, Dig Insights helps researchers at the world's most well-loved brands drive growth in crowded categories. Their work is supported by proprietary technology, including Upside, the only ResTech platform exclusively built to test and optimize innovation. Learn more at diginsights.com. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another edition of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to spend it with myself and my guest. And uh, today, this is going to be, I, I think, a really, really uh, cool and enlightening conversation because my guest is Dr. Uri Genizzi, uh Professor of Economics and Strategy uh, and the Epstein Atkinson Chair in Behavioral Economics at the Rowdy School of Management. Uh, at University of California, San Diego. So, Uri, welcome. Thank you. It's a very long title. <laughs> That's all right. You know, when you look at my LinkedIn profile, I got all types of stuff too. So, okay. you know. Uh, great to be with you. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. Uh, and it is a long title because, obviously, you do lots of interesting stuff. So, why don't we, for the audience and even for myself, talk a little bit about your background and, and your role, and then we can play off from there. Sure. So I'm from Israel, which um, these days carries a lot of um, sad aspects to it. Um, did my undergrad over there, then did my PhD in Tilburg in the Netherlands, came back to Israel, spent five years in Chicago, and I'm currently in San Diego for the last 17 years already. My research is around behavioral economics, like you said uh, when we chatted before. So behavioral economics is basically using economics principle, like optimization and, and marginal thinking and this kind of uh, reasoning, but without assumptions. So the traditional economics used uh, strong assumptions that were useful for creating mathematical models. For example, that people are rational, people can calculate everything, people are selfish. All this good stuff that turns out to be useful in some cases, less useful in others. In behavioral economics, at least the way I look at it, we don't assume things about people. We rather go out, collect data, and see how they behave. And that's particularly important in what I study, which is incentives. Now, incentives clearly matter. They clearly impact the behavior of people. But the, the nice thing about them is that it doesn't always influence the behavior of people in the predicted way. So very often I go, I design incentives, I run it. It could be in the real world, it could be in the lab, and surprised by the results, go back to the drawing board, do another round until we find out to optimize it. But incentives clearly work. We need to understand how it works on people. The simplified assumption don't work. So that's that's basically what I what I study, and I I feel lucky because I think it's interesting. What motivates us? Absolutely. As we were chatting beforehand. I'm, I'm definitely an amateur fan, uh, all the way from, you know, reading, uh, reading Kahneman's, you know, original, you know, thinking fast and slow and 
the in the research space the idea of system one versus system two and traditionally we've always been very system two oriented and you know i think of this as a bucket of ideas that i i think of as applied behavioral science and, and lots of different dimensions for that and from the market research space obviously ultimately our goal is to get people to do stuff right so we collect information so the marketers can use it to get people to change their behavior exactly, exactly. yes so if I, if I was charting this, I would kind of categorize the way that you're thinking, or I assume you're thinking about incentives under kind of the nudge, right? These are nudges of, of you know, ways to prompt behavior change. But the word itself in the market research space has a very transactional component. It's a reward process versus a influencing or directional process. And I, I think that's a real challenge for our industry so let me step back. Sorry, I'm, I, I was excited to talk about this because it's something I don't think is talked about that often. When we think about this idea of incentives and rewards, it's you do what I want you to do and here you're going to get something. And then it's done. There's no lasting change uh, or engagement as a result of that. Now, is it true that from your perspective and in, in your uh, area of study that there is a mechanism of engagement and long-lasting change and thinking about incentives for long-lasting behavior modification. Is that a, a piece of that? Uh, no. No. So <laughs> no, no, no. There we go. <laughs> right. So it's like, uh, I'm sorry, maybe it's the, like I told you, I'm Israeli, we are not agreeable maybe. So no on many levels. <laughs> First of all, I don't do nudges. So nudges is a seat and the way it's being marketed is more, you know, I have this trick, I will... You know, look at the breakfast buffet. I'll switch between the tomatoes and the bacon, put the bacon in the back, and obesity will disappear from the world. Unfortunately, that's not the way it works. If you know, if if you'll be tired and go to the buffet and you're indifferent between the bacon and the tomato, maybe the placement of them will be important. If you're not, you're just going to reach out. And in general, nudges had very, very little effect on behavior, like you said, behavior change. So I cannot point to one place in which it changed. Behavior. If you think about the classical example like uh, organ donation, it has no effect on organ donation. So default, you know, if you do it between opt-in and opt-out, changes whether people mark the opt on the card to donate the organs. But if you look at actual behavior later on, there is no effect on that because that's a much more complex situation. And in general, especially when you talk about behavior change, exactly like you said, in that part, I do agree with you. It's much much harder than, you know, I'll, I'll do a small trick and then get you to lose 20 pounds or to start running or exercise or stop smoking. It's it's way more complicated than this. Incentive is a very different thing. Incentive basically runs the world. There's this famous story about the Russian, the Soviet economists that came to London in the 80s and asked to meet with the guy in charge of bread distribution in London. So the people don't know there is no one. It's basically the idea is that in, uh, in the way our economy works, the guy that grows the the wheat wakes up in the morning and works for a year until or whatever until they can harvest it because they need to to get paid. And the same is true for the truck driver that brings it and to the baker that wakes up. You know, all this is just controlled by incentives. In the Soviet Union, the reason it didn't work is not because they didn't have incentives, but the incentives were not good. Right? So that's why it didn't work. So incentives are here. It's not something that... Uh, 
we come and introduce incentives. You all have incentive. You you woke up this morning and uh, you're sitting now and doing this podcast. You have some incentive. My incentive is to spread my ideas, maybe sell some books. I don't know what are your incentives, but I'm sure that you have some maybe interesting discussion, maybe get more followers. I don't know what it is, but we all have incentives. On top of that, you need to introduce incentive. And that's exactly like you, what you said. It's not easy. So think about, I'm 56. Imagine that I go to the doctor, tells me, oh, you're overweight, you're pre-diabetic. You need to start walk half an hour a day and then everything will be better. And I say, sure. I mean, diabetes is a horrible disease. I'll do everything. I have strong incentives to avoid it. Then I go back home and I open up a six pack and sit in front of, the, of Netflix, right? So... The question with the things that I'm trying to do is how to get this guy, this 56-year-old overweight guy, to walk half an hour a day where the incentives are already there, right? It's, there is a very strong incentive to do it. Not getting diabetes, that's stronger than any incentive I will ever be able to provide anyone, right? So tell me, you know, how much money do I have to pay you in order to get diabetes? There is no amount of money that you can pay me. I, but still... Uh, we believe that with, with incentives, we can change people's behavior because we are complicated machines and we don't always um, behave in the way that is predicted. So again, economists would predict if this will prevent diabetes, that is strong enough incentives, this guy is going to walk for hours every day. And the reality is not. And the question is, can we introduce some incentive to change that? So that's actually, that's a very relevant example because I experienced that. And, and we'll share the point. I went to the doctor and I was overweight and I was pre-diabetic and uh, started this keto diet, lost the weight, but it didn't stick. It's right? hard. So the incentive. It's hard. Yeah, right. And, and I, I think my point, not necessarily about that, it, it's about the stickiness of incentives, right, of that behavior change. So is that an area that you explore? Of Absolutely. Of, Absolutely. Instead of sticking, as we call it, habit formation, how do we get you to actually, you know, you, Lenny, to to keep with your diet, the diet you, that you started? And it turns out to be that it is extremely hard. In the short run, we can. And we know. So I lost like 5,000 pounds in my diet. <laughs> I, I did too. right? So that's, that, that's the yeah. problem, right? Uh, in yeah, my yeah. adult life, right? So it's easy. In some cases, it's easy to lose weight. But keeping this is, is hard, right? Sticking with it is very hard. And we, we understand some of the reasons, right? I want to eat this steak or cake or whatever now, and the punishment for it is later in the future, right? So we are focused on now. We understand this. We understand that uh, evolution made us really chase sugar and fat because there was scarcity of that. Now there isn't, but it takes time. Uh, to adopt for it, so we, we need it. Uh, we understand that genes are important. We understand all these problems, but still, can we get people to do, maybe not to keep all the weight down, but to keep somewhat uh, healthier uh, outcome is, is, is useful. And when you think about these things, for example, if I would have been your doctor, I would tell you that actually exercising is easier than losing weight. Because in order not to lose weight, you need to be good for 24 hours a day, right? You can be good for... 23 hours, then get home, eat this large uh, cheesecake, piece of cheesecake, and your day is gone, right? With exercising, you need to be good, in a sense, only when you're exercising. So that makes it a bit easier, I think, right? A, a bit more likely to stick in the long run. So if you can get into your schedule that, I don't know, Monday and Thursday morning, you go to the gym, that might be easier because the willpower that you have to exercise is for a shorter period than 
all the time. But th- th- those are the kind of things that we try to, to understand. But clearly, it's not something that I'll just, uh, in your case, with, the, with what you, you described, that I'll change the, the placement of the tomato and the bacon and, and you lose weight. No, you'll find the bacon. You'll find your way to the bacon. You find a way, yeah. <laughs> well, and the justification for the, uh, it, just as an example, right? We could we could have a whole other conversation about the secrets of uh, of, of weight loss. That, like you, I I lost mm-hmm. a lot, and I put a lot of it back on. But let's broaden it to the application within you know, business or within social good. It's the same principle, right? We we have whatever self destructive. Uh, tendencies for whatever reason we want to you know, be able to change those things what are the tips that you've learned or a framework to think about for listeners to say okay you here you have a desired outcome of a behavior change and you know through the lens of incentives these are the things that you need to pay attention to uh and try and incorporate into your strategy right so imagine that you want to incentivize people say to save energy then what you should First of all, one thing that you should emphasize is the one-time change, right? So if you uh, you want to save electricity, if I want you to stay without the AC for a long time or something like that, that's going to be hard because at some point you're going to be tired and your spouse will annoy you or something like that, and you'll just continue with what you have. But if you invest some money in insulating your house, for example, that's going to stay there, right? So one-time change, that's always good to do. Another one is to reduce uh, barriers to to do something. So, for example, we had success with paying people to go to the gym because in many cases, you know that the gym is there. It will take you half an hour to register and you don't do it because, you know, well, I don't know where where do I need to go? Where is there? Where can I change clothes? When, I, when can I, you know, which form do I have to sign? That's annoying. I just will do it tomorrow. And if I pay you some money to go and do that, after the first few times that you do it, you might develop some kind of habit and I will lower this barrier for you to go there. Right? So that's another example. Another one could be information. So an uh, w- example that I really like is the recycling of plastic uh, water bottles. That's one of the worst things that happened to, in terms of the environment, the, the fact that we can recycle them. Because you know, if you're the type of person that doesn't care about the environment, you'll just drink it and throw it away. That's fine. But the people that really care about the environment now see it as a license, as a permit to drink from these plastic bottles because they think, oh, anyway, I'm recycling it. Turns out that the recycle process reduces the damage, but it reduces it by, I don't know, 20% because many of them don't end up in the recycle, but simply in the trash. And even when they do end up in the right place, there is a, there is a loss for the environment by using them. So I think that just providing this information to people who care about the environment might get them to, to have a reusable bottle instead of the plastic bottle. So information is another one uh, that you can think of. And that, again, this, these are the kind of things that you may be able to achieve with incentives. So I think, bring it back to kind of the, the lens of market research and this transactional component, right? What I've often thought is that the four categories of incentive are either economic, social, entertainment, or fun, or altruistic, right? And, and you think about those things where people offer, hey, do this for us. You either get information or here's a check or you'll engage with people. And we tend to 
I, I think not just the market research industry, but, but many uh, industries, when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so we default to the idea of we're just going to give people money. But that is not a motivating factor for engagement or for, for participation for some chunk of the population. I, I think about social media platforms, right? They offer all of those things, you know, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. There's some components where you can incorporate all of those things, and that keeps you coming back. You know, so, well, first, what do you, what do, am I right in thinking about those kind of motivational buckets when you think about incentives that, that we have to think about different levers? So this time the answer is yes. Okay, know, good. Yeah, That's better, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, use, I, I use a different classification, but in general, you know, in, in practical terms, it's the same. So absolutely, incentive is not just money, right? Money is an easy way to do it. And Money could be useful in some cases and could be insulting in other cases, right? If I'll ask you, uh, Lenny, can you come help me move my couch and then I'll give you $10, you'll be insulted by that. If I'll buy you a beer, you won't, even if it costs less than $10, you're not going to be insulted, right? So money carries some kind of meaning. In this case, it could depend on the amount. If I'll give you uh, $10,000 for helping me moving the couch, you'll be, you'll, you'll be happy, I think. No, I don't know about you. If you want help with moving your couch, they're willing to pay $10,000 for it. I'm there. Right? So, <laughs> be a hell of a couch to pay that much, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So the, the amount of money could also carry some meaning. But in general, in many cases, it's better to pay in other ways. So you talked about social incentives. In many cases, we see that paying people to do something, to volunteers, say, we call it crowds out. It makes them do it less likely to do it. So if I ask you, Lenny, can you come and donate blood? Maybe you'll give two hours of your time and do it because it will make you feel good about yourself because you'll help the, the world. If I'll pay you $20 to do this, you'll say, well, for $20, I won't do it, right? So I'm paying you money and it changes the meaning. Now you're not going to look at it as I did something good. You'll say, I did it for, for $20. That's not worth two hours of my time and the needle, right? But if I'll tell you, look, if you'll come, apart from everything, we'll give $20 to, I don't know, Make-A-Wish Foundation. I'll donate this. So that's kind of social incentive. And I say, wow, that's great, right? So in this case, instead of paying you the $20, I give it to charity, and that actually helps uh, with, with convincing you, right? So the interplay over there is really interesting, right? That's what makes incentives so interesting, I think. And using all of, all of the categories that you mentioned is important. So sometimes money, sometimes I need to give you something else. With the blood donation, I can give you a coffee mug with the logo of the blood bank, then every morning that, you know, I'll drink coffee, I'll say, wow, well, oh, you're a good guy, you donated blood, right? So that will reinforce the, so money is good in some cases, not good in others. Giving gifts is good in some cases, not in others. Charity might be a better approach in some other cases. So it's really complicated, which again, if you understand all of this, it really helps you, all the, the entire spectrum, it really helps you to try and find what's going to work in your case. We're going to take a quick pause to highlight our podcast partner, Dig Insights. Have you listened to Dig In? It's the podcast brought to you by Dig Insights, designed for brand professionals that crave innovation inspiration. Each week, Dig invites a business leader onto the podcast to spill the beans on the story behind some of the coolest innovations on the market. Search Dig In wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so I've got two two questions. Um, the first one, and we'll go with that, and then I'll ask the second. What 
whether it was a campaign or a project you were directly involved with or not, what do you think of as, man, that is the best example of applied incentive strategy that I've ever seen? I think that the answer is clear, uh, reducing smoking. So if you look uh, from the early 70s, that's before my time as a researcher, in the U.S., so I, I live in California, probably, I don't, I don't know the numbers, but it was way over half of the people who smoked. Your teacher in school would probably smoke in front of you. I'm old enough to remember flying. I was, you know, I was very young, guys, so I was always sat in the, in the back seat where you were allowed to smoke. So people from business class would come, sit on my laps, you know, smoke on me and, and go away, right? Yeah, smoking in hospitals, smoking in everywhere. Right, right. right. Your doctor is smoking, right, right. Right, right. My parents had big ashtrays sitting in the house. It was a social thing, right? Exactly. I have have ads from the 50s and 60s where um, doctors recommended pregnant women to smoke because it's going to relax them. So from this world, we got to today where almost no one smokes, at least in California. You go to Europe, you go to some places, there are more people smoking, but in California, there is... You don't see people smoking. On my campus, you're not allowed to smoke. You have to walk like 10 minutes in order to smoke a cigarette. And then you think about what made this go there. So first of all, you know, it was the labels. Then it was the horrible pictures that in some places you have. Uh, Then it was you're not allowed to smoke in the workplace. You're not allowed to to smoke even in the building. You have to go out. Not allowed to smoke in bars. You know, all these small steps. And of course, of course, of course, the price of cigarettes, which is extremely important because you know, today I can afford buying a pack in, in California. I think it costs more than $10. I can afford buying it. But 56-year-old don't start smoking. It's 16-year-old who starts smoking or 15. For them, $10 is a lot of money. When it was $2, they could afford it. When it's $10, it's much harder for them. So all these steps of this public policy, are starting in the 70s, I think, really changed the smoking habits of, of the population. And it took more than 50 years, but but it's there, and I think that I, I look at all of it as incentive. If I'm not allowed to smoke in a bar, why would I smoke, right? Because smoking, it's really fun to, to drink beer and smoke with your friends. But if I'm not allowed, it, I look at it as incentive. The price is clearly an incentive. The fact that yeah, on my campus you have to walk 10 or 15 minutes in order to smoke, that really increases the cost of smoking, right? So that now people are less likely to do it. All of this, I, I look at them, all this public policy as incentive and was extremely successful. Maybe the most successful public policy I can think of. Now, the flip side, an example of the application that was effective, but maybe it'd be better if it hadn't have been. Maybe a misapplication. Because I mean, let's be clear that these, you know, depending upon the the intent, understanding how to control the levers of behavior can be done for good, like your example, but sometimes for not so good. So an example where you're thinking, man, I really wish they had not read my book or had not <laughs> followed through because that wasn't a great application. Well, they should have read my book and then they wouldn't have done it. So uh, I have this old paper about uh, giving fines for parents coming to pick up their kids late. And recently I learned about uh, a similar incident from England. So they have this problem that when you go, when you have kids and you want to go on vacation, you have to do it during, say, spring break. And then everyone is out there. So it's much more crowded and it costs much more. So people took their kids a week earlier and it was a much cheaper trip and it's much more pleasant because there are less people over there. Other people's kids are really annoying. If you go off spring break, it's, it's good. The schools didn't like it because the school, you know, they want you to be there. They want the kids to be there when, when school is on. 
So what they did, they introduced, if I remember correctly, it was 60 pound fine if your kid was absent the week before. And then what you saw is, of course, a much larger fraction of parents taking their kids a week before because for 60 pounds, you know, the, the, the tickets, the airline tickets are going to be 500 pounds cheaper. And, you know, now basically you put a price on it. Before that, I didn't know how bad it is to be uh, to be absent, to, to go on vacation during the school year. Now you're telling me that it's only 60 pounds. For 60 pounds, I'm willing to pay it and just go. So sometimes, you know, just imposing a fine could have a, a really negative in, impact on Backfired. I'm, I'm willing to pay that. Exactly. So now I get a license to not to be there. Right, right. That's really, really interesting. Right, so we mentioned your, your, your book. Let's talk about uh, your publishing. You know, where can folks access uh, your thinking and around all of this? Right. So the book is called Mixed Signals. And the idea is that every incentive that we give, send them signal to, to the recipient. In the example that I just gave with the schools in England, the, the signal was, it's okay to go to be late. You just have to pay 60 pounds. Before that, I didn't know how bad it is. Now you told me how bad it is. That's a signal. And in general, the, the book looks at uh, how in many cases, it's called Mixed Signal, because in many cases, I can tell you that I really want you, for example, to focus on quality. But then I give you incentive for quantity, then you know, you're going to follow the incentives and I'm not going to get quality. And if I don't understand it, it's not enough for me to say something. And it could be that I can tell you I care about the long run, but give you incentives to be to do well in the short run. Again, you're not going to think about the long run. I can tell you be a team player, but give you individual incentives based on your performance, then why would you do things like mentoring other uh, new employees, right? I can tell you to be creative, but then creativity means that you're increasing the risk of failure, right? So if you're increasing this and my incentives are uh, set such that I punish you if you fail, why would you try new things, right? So all these, I gave four examples, I have many more. All these are examples where I tell you one thing, but then my incentives send you a different signal and you don't really know what will happen. And in many cases, companies, employers, parents, whatever, Say one thing, then set incentives that send a different message and are surprised that they don't get what they expected. So in general, by the way, the, the takeaway of the book is very simple. That I think that every company should have what I like to call a common sense officer. <laughs> right, exactly. Pick, pick someone from the street that tell them, look, that's what I'm going to do. And they can tell you if it made sense or not. Right? So make sure that you use common sense to, to think, okay, I'm, I'm going to pay you for quantity. What's going to happen to quality? Well, you know, and very often, you know, think about engineers, they don't have common sense, so they need it. And then the second part is this A-B testing kind of culture that is really important because you can set the incentives and sometimes you send the wrong message that you didn't think about. Sometimes people, many times people will find ways to game the system. People are really creative at this. Don't roll it for the entire operation. Roll it for a small group. See how it works. Tweak it as needed until you're satisfied and then keep monitoring it with A-B testing routinely because people might learn how to game it, even if they didn't know immediately. No, oh, yeah. I mean, and that is a significant issue in in advertising click fraud, right? We, we incentivize that in the market research industry, false participants in, in research studies because we enabled that. We gave them the incentive for the fraud with the focus on speed and scale versus quality. Yes, 
that's I think that's a great example, right? In which, so in this case, you need to monitor them, you need to audit them, you need to make sure that they don't give you trash, otherwise they will. So you want you want them to be fast and efficient, right? But you don't want them to have way to, of cheating you. So, so question now, uh, this you know the big topic of the year has been the advent of generative AI, right? Yes. Uh, Chat GPT, those type of things. Um, no question. Yes, and flavor of the month, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Data and you know, it's yes, yes, flavor of the last uh, last ten months so right. far. That's but true. that's true. Right, I personally have not so stayed right in tune of watching it, understanding it, seeing what's going on, but have held back on utilizing many of these tools because I know myself. I don't want to get lazy, right? I don't want to outsource some of these you know things that that I could utilize these tools for. So in, let's step back for a second. In areas of technological disruption and innovation, that's great. We're, we're in one of those, those periods right now. But what's your take uh, on the, the concerns? I thought that, you'd take it in a different direction about the morality and ethical aspects of that. And I think- so We can talk about that too. Right. No, no, I think that it's not relevant for us as individuals, right? So it's like asking if uh, having word processor is is ethical because uh, many secretaries are going to lose their job or, you know, tractors are they ethical because farmers are, you know, I think, and, and clearly there are copyrights, there are a lot of important ethical issues, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm The question is, am I using it? I'm using it all the time. Now, I know that I have a perfect American accent, but you'll be surprised that I'm not, uh, English is not my first language and writing is... So much easier when you plug in the right prompts into the chat GPT, right? And so I'm using it. I became what you called lazier than I was, right? I'm lazy to begin with, and I'm lazier now. I'm using it. I think that with me, the chance that, uh, that I will lose some of the ability is lower, but I think about my son, he's 20-year-old, he's in college. He's going to lose some of the abilities that we had, right? Because he's using it all the time now. There are some some abilities that are not that important. The, the ability to write in cursive, you know, they, they, they don't learn it anymore because you don't write anymore. They use computers, which use phone, right? It, which is fine, right? I think that that's not, uh, that, that's, again, it's not a moral question. It's, technology is changing. They are changing. They might lose some of the ability to for creative writing. The world is going to change. From my perspective as an economist, I would ask, how would the world change and what? You know, if I was a marketer, what should I change in what I'm doing in order to to address this change? And the change is coming. So I'm lazier than you. I I do a lot of. Unfortunately for me, when I wrote this book, that this option was not there anymore. <laughs> if I write another one, it's going to be. It's going. You know, ChatGPT is going to be my call. Well, the the laziness is my way of thinking about it for myself because I know that by by my nature. You know, water flows to the the lowest point. Right. right? Um, please don't take it as any derogatory thing. And, no, and no, for I, our I'm, listeners, I'm proud of being lazy. I think of laziness, <laughs> right? So if you're not lazy, you know, you can spend all the time doing nonsense work. For example, if you're lazy enough, you don't. Right. So you're more you pick what you're doing. So I, I for me, laziness is not necessarily negative. Well, good. All right. So that's <laughs> we can go lots of other places off that, but we'll we'll leave that one there. So. Our listeners are primarily folks that work within 
market research organizations, uh, either on the brand side, you know, P&Gs and those of the world, or on the, the supplier side. And everybody's listening, I think, with the intent of thinking about how do we take these lessons and apply it to the world of marketing and or and, and marketing insights. So is there a distillation that you could offer from that particular lens that would be useful to, to the listeners? Or is the answer, go read my book? And that's okay, too. Well, it's always read. Well, buy my book. I don't care about reading it. Just buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I can give you an example, because I think that almost everything that you do is in a company is around marketing, right? So it's not that one thing is not. So the CEO of Coca-Cola had this great idea. He said, we can put a thermometer in the vending machine and change the price depending on the temperature outside. On a cold day, we can charge people, say, a dollar. On a hot day, we charge them $1.50 because people want to buy more. He introduces this and everyone was, you know, jumped. That was, what are you doing? Are you trying to take advantage of us when we really need uh, your soda cans? That's when you are uh, raising the price. This is, in some cases, we are used to it. Air, airlines use it all the time. Hotels use it all the time. But for, for this, for some reason, people were upset. What he should have done, and that's what the marketing people should have told him, look, you're getting it wrong. You should say the regular price is $1.50, and on a cold day, you'll get a discount, and it's going to be only a dollar. Now, now he's a great guy. Now Coca-Cola is a great company because they're willing to reduce the price when they can. They give you a discount, right? So the first one, people saw it as a surcharge. The regular price is a dollar. On a hot day, you charge me $1.50. That's nasty. This one, which is exactly the same number for exactly the same situation, you give me a discount, you're great. Right, so that's that's what they think. Marketing people—that's when they interact with the, the incentives. That understanding the incentive tell the story. I look at the I look at the soda can. It's never just a soda can. It comes with a big story around it, and I'm going to use everything that I have, every clue that I have from the environment, in order to construct this story. In many cases, incentives are going to be part of this story, and if I see that uh, the company is nasty to me, I'll I'll go to Pepsi. I'll just take a Pepsi instead of the Coke. But if they are nice to me, then maybe I'll, uh, I'll reward them by buying their product. And I think that that's, the, that's a good uh, connection between understanding that incentive is also part of the marketing. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That's great. So what have I not asked that I should have or that you would like to touch on? Those are two things. So when I said that I'm Israeli, you should have asked me about the incentives, maybe how it relates to the Israeli conflict, but it's good that you didn't because I would start crying because of the situation now. So maybe this part you can cut. Let me let me answer it differently. That's not a good not a good way to start to finish the the podcast, I think. No, I'm actually glad you brought it up. I was I plan on circling back to it because we can't ignore the world. So we don't have to dive much deeper into it, but I, I it let me let me start from the beginning. So if you think about the Israel situation, it's really interesting because Israel has the best intelligence in the world. It knows everything that happens on the other side on the Hamas border. And yet the real thing that they that the other side planned for two years with thousands of people took Israel by complete surprise. How did it happen? So if you look at it just from an incentive perspective, Israel understood everything about the the payoff, you can say, of the other side of the Hamas. Let's make it simple. Hamas could have had the status quo, in which from time to time they shoot rocket, nothing too massive, we retaliate, but that's okay. Then we keep allowing $30 million from Qatar money to go every month into the Gaza Strip. We allow tens of thousands of uh, workers from the Gaza Strip to go into Israel. 
they are happy because they can maintain the place, the people are happy, everything is okay. And they knew, everyone knew that the other payoff is Hamas is doing going to do something really drastic like they did, and then we're going to flatten the Gaza Strip. It's going to be horrible over there. Right? We understood the incentives. The, we call it the conception was that Hamas prefers the first over the second option, because that's that's how we see the world. If you if I ask you what do you prefer, what would you prefer, you will tell me, I prefer the normal life, right? I want to have people will go kids will go to school, hospitals will work, people will have uh, money. Turns out that that wasn't the case. Hamas preferred the second one, preferred the, the total war version of it. But the interesting part, the part, you know, we understood the incentive, we just didn't understand the utility function. But then once we, we think about it in incentives term, you know, you see a week before that, Hamas made a huge drill of how they're going to take military bases and uh, settlements and posted it on social media. In Israel, that should have been, oh, wait a minute, maybe we are wrong. No, it said, no, actually, yeah, that's, they're doing these drills just to, to keep the facade, right? So it's, we call it confirmation bias, or psychologists call it confirmation bias. Every new information that you had that should have had some, well, wait a minute, something's wrong happening, was attributed to what we thought, the conception that we had. And that's, you know, I think that that was the mistake. So we understood the, the incentive. We didn't understand the utility that they put on each one of them. And then we interpreted everything based on the way we wanted to see it, the Israelis. And I think that that was the, the big mistakes in terms of incentives that, that really led Israel to be surprised by, by the attack. It's a powerful example. All right. And uh, join you in, in hoping that this situation, I'm not sure when this particular podcast is going to be resolved. Obviously, the whole world's watching this with with horror and disgust and, and fear the, uh, and hope that this is resolved uh, in a way that saves more lives than have been lost so far. And, you know, God bless you and your family that uh, anybody else has been impacted. Thank but you. The, but that example, I think, as you mentioned confirmation bias, I think that's a great warning for everybody to think about. With this concept, but like your example of the Coke uh, CEO, well, yeah, this makes perfect sense. We go in and do this, and and we interpret data through our own lens and our own biases, uh, and often the message is something radically different. Exactly, and that that goes back to the common sense officer. The common sense officer, if you would have put any normal person over there instead of the engineers that can put the thermometer in the vending machine or the economists that advise them, you put normal person. No, I'll be pissed off if you increase the price when it's hot outside. Find a different solution, right? That's that's the common sense officer that I talked about that many companies are missing. Yeah, well, it's, you know, we call it the, uh, uh, you know, the voice of dissent, the out of the box, the, you know, but somebody to poke, somebody to poke a hole and say, wait, wait a minute, are we really thinking about this correctly? Are we interpreting this, exactly, uh, this exactly, appropriately? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Want to be conscious of, of your time and uh, also our, our listeners. Where can people buy your book? So, <laughs> yeah, I feel uh, cheesy, like you know. No, 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 absolutely. You know, hey. I was selling uh, selling books. Uh, Amazon, Amazon is a good place. I don't know. Okay, all right. So you can find it on Amazon. And where can people find you and follow you? Is because I assume this this is what you believe up to now. There's going to be more uh, as you continue to to think through this whole process. So where can people follow you? Yeah, I'm not really on social media. I'm always happy to get to receive emails. 
So you can, if you Google my name, you'll find my email and I'm always happy to get feedback, positive or negative, because otherwise I feel as if I'm talking to myself. So getting, uh, getting feedback is great. That's great. Thank you so much. This has been, been a great conversation. Really, really appreciate it. I hope that we have an opportunity for you to come back and participate in other ways. Anything else that you want to put out there before we wrap up? No, it was fun. Really enjoyed it. So thank you. Good. I'm glad. So that's time well spent. That's an incentive. Yes. Right? <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you, Ori. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Big shout out to uh, our producer, Natalie, our sponsor, Dig Insights. And of course, thank you for uh, our listeners for joining us. Otherwise, it would just be you know, Ori and I talking, which would be a blast. It's but fun. It's, uh, that's good enough. Yeah. Yeah. But it's nice when there's kind of this eavesdropping thing. You know, of like maybe someone else is getting something out of this besides just me. It's it's just my it's my altruism incentive. You know, I, I just like helping people, and I hope they get something out of this. So, anyway, that's it for uh, this episode of the Greenbow Podcast. I'll uh, be back real soon. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.